beloved in the Lord, as we go through the names of Christ, it's, it's wonderful to see how every name is also a message to us about who Christ is and what He's doing for us. You see, when we receive Christ, it's not just a part of Christ that is promised or some particular aspect of who He is. We receive the whole Christ, all of Christ. And receiving the whole Christ, every aspect of who He is and what He has done is meaningful to the Christian in his life before God. If Christ is the Son of God, I too am privileged to share in that sonship. The catechism draws the necessary distinction, not as a, naturalized, not, not as a natural son, but as a naturalized son. If Christ is Lord, then I am privileged to be His possession. And as His treasured possession, I know that my Lord has power over all things and that I have no need to boast in men. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme today, live as blood-bought sons of God in Christ. Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God, and Christ, who is our Lord. Our Lord is named Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Our Lord is given the title Christ because He is anointed and chosen by God to do this task. But there's another title He has that brings out the significance of His divinity. He is the Son of God. The Son in the Old Testament often signifies a representation of the Father into the world. We can think of the parable of the landowner in Matthew. The landowner sends out his servants to see how the garden is doing, to see what the, how the caretakers are doing. They are persecuted and killed. Finally, he sends his son, who is all the more representative of the father, assuming they will take him more seriously because he is a fuller reflection of the father, of the landowner. Of course, we know from that parable what they do to the son as well. But the point is, the son is a representation of the father into the world. Similarly, the son of the king was often vice-regent to the Father. This was the common practice in Israel and in the surrounding nations. The Son then often projected the glory of the Father to the nations around, especially in the battlefield. When the Father was too old to fight, the Son had the strength of youth and ideally used that strength to build up the kingdom of His Father. And we can see the logic today as well. Even though we tend to view sons more independently than their, father, than their fathers than, they, than we would have in the past, we do see a reflection between son and father. 
But the Son of God is not only uniquely a son of the Father, as the Catechism says, but he also has a unique relationship with the Father, of which the relationship between Father and Son on earth is only an imitation of or reflection of. We are told in the Scriptures that Christ is the exact image of the Father, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He uniquely reveals the Father and is uniquely positioned to because He is fully God, even as the Father is. When you see me, says Jesus, you've seen the Father. We see the mystery of the Trinity. Christ is fully God, even as He is a distinct person. The sonship of Christ is also reflected typologically through the relationships that God has with, with men in salvation history. Adam is a type of son. David is a type of son. Israel is a type of son. However, the Catechism rightly notes that only Christ is uniquely the natural Son of God. And this unique relationship, that unique relationship between God the Father and the God the Son is, is something the church fathers would have called eternal generation. The Son of God's relationship with the Father is eternally reflected in fatherhood and sonship. The Son is eternally coming from the Father. So that the Son is generated from the Father not as less than the Father, but as from the Father. The distinction between the persons is found in the relationship while each person remains fully God and is worthy of all the glory and honor and praise that God is due. Colossians calls Christ the firstborn of creation, not in the sense that He is the first created thing, but that He is the one through whom all things are made. It's another way of saying that He is the Word. He's the one through whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And it's because He's the firstborn of all creation that He willingly stepped into the line of David adding to himself a truly human body. He was able to show us in himself and in his work the image of the invisible God to those who are granted sight by the Holy Spirit. You see, the other sons of salvation history failed. Adam failed to keep God's commands in the garden. Israel failed to follow God when she was planted in the land. David did not keep God's commandments, and neither did his children, until Jesus the Christ was born as the only sinless man. And as the only sinless man, God gave Christ the privilege of not only being the firstborn of creation, but of being the firstborn of the dead. So that coming to life from that death, that death we're under in Adam, coming to life in Christ, we may also be called sons of God. We may be 
connected to the life of God. You see, not only are we not natural sons of God in the sense that Christ is, but we are also separated from God through the sin of Adam. We're under death. We're barred from the tree of life unless God does something. And so the Catechism adds, we, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. That's why the Colossians calls the work of Christ as the Son of God in the flesh a reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God. And so Christ, through His death, has reconciled us to God. That reconciliation is the adoption that the Catechism is speaking of. We are reconciled. It's a finished work. In that sense, too, adoption is a one-time thing. Once the papers are signed, the child is legally under the protection of parents who are not biologically related to him. This is the same as the reconciliation that, the Colossians, that Colossians speaks of. Our Lord in His body of flesh was put to death. You who were alienated and doing evil deeds have received that death as your own. And because in that death your sins die, you are no longer under death. That's the signed and sealed paper, the death of Jesus Christ, that signs our adoption before God. And with your sins gone in the death of Christ, you may approach God as a son. Romans 8, we call by the Spirit, Abba, Father. So how do you live as our son, our theme? Live as blood-bought sons of God. We have the words of Colossians 1.23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You are reconciled, and the call is to live as reconciled by continuing in the faith. That reconciliation, that's a big word. It's a big concept. It's something that is finished in Christ, and it's also something that begins in Him. You are reconciled so that you may grow closer and closer to God. Again, there's a parallel here with the idea of adoption. You become a son of God. That is legal, completely finished. Now, as a son of God, you begin to look more and more like your father. First John 3 verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and, that we will, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, when, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see, once we're brought into the kingdom, once we receive that spirit, God is working in us a greater and greater likeness to our heavenly Father. 
And just as Christ presented the Father to the world, so we present Christ to the world, and in Christ, the Father as well. We become symbols of reconciliation to the Father, adopted sons that wear the face of, the father, of our Father, not literally, but by loving the things He loves, righteousness, holiness, and excellence. And there's more. As children, we have an inheritance. That inheritance is described in Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Paul is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our inheritance is the kingdom of God in the Son. Our inheritance is eternal life, an eternal life of ruling and reigning with our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the reason we are able to be sons of God, reconciled to the Father, is because Jesus Christ has made us His own possession as our Lord. And if you think about that idea of possession, that's the beginning note of the catechism. I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about the Lordship of Christ. Christ is our Lord because He ransomed us. We were slaves of sin. We were slaves of sin by our own choice, and under death, we could not but continue to sin. The opposite of free will is not being a robot. The opposite of free will is having an enslaved will. Adam and Eve had free will, but were enslaved to sin. It's only in Christ that we have that freedom again. The primary picture of redemption in the Old Testament is the rescue of Israel from the land of Egypt. Israel was enslaved by Pharaoh, and the Lord stretched out His arm through Moses and brought Egypt to its knees so that Israel could be freed. Wonderful picture of our redemption. And it also shows us something about the nature of redemption at times, because Israel is shown to have a double mind about her slavery under Pharaoh. She groans under it, but when she's freed, she's always looking back to her slavery as something good, something better. Isn't it the same with our sin? When we're under it, we groan. We want what is good. But when we are rescued, too often we look with fond desire upon it. But the glory is that God has redeemed us from sin. So even when we look fondly upon our sin, we need to remember, we need to remember what Christ has done Christ shed His blood. In the words of Romans 6, verse 7, we are freed from the power of sin. So we know that even though sin still has its effect on our lives, we no longer have to sin. 
we are able to do what is truly good in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful truth, brothers and sisters? When you have that lustful urge or that desire to tear down your brother unjustly, you can stand firm in the knowledge that you are free. You don't have to do that. And God didn't do that with silver and gold. He did that through something far more valuable than that. He did it with the precious blood of Christ. If we want to talk about the power of the gospel, this is the power. Christ poured out His precious blood. And do you remember what Leviticus tells us about the blood? The life is in the blood. So Christ poured out His life for us so that we may have life in Him. That does more than just pay for the judgment of God. It also gives us the right to share in His life, which is part and parcel of the inheritance we have in Him. Eternal life is to be with Jesus Christ. Because he was raised from the dead, and as our because he was raised from the dead, and as our resurrected Lord, we are in fact able to share in that life. The Catechism continues. He has freed us from all the power of devil. By disobeying God, man not only became subject to sin and death, but he became subject to the devil. Because he heard the voice of the devil rather than the voice of God, he subjected himself to the devil. In the Old Testament, God sets up the promised, of, promised land as a place that should be free, that should be free from the dominion of the devil. It's not so much in Christ's time as he comes to the land and finds it full of demon possession. In terms of the New Testament, we are, as Colossians 1 says, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's not a literal transfer, as Israel was delivered from the house of slavery to the promised land. Rather, that transfer signifies that we are made the special possession of Jesus because our flesh is in heaven we're safe in Him. Again from Romans 6, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, in the words of Lord's Day 1, you belong to Christ, body and soul. So how do you live as a blood-bought son? For one, as Romans 6 notes, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, there will, will already be a natural growth of obedience that is proper to Christians. We can think of that imagery of the vine. There's going to be that natural connection to Christ through faith that's going to connect you to the spirit and the life of Jesus Christ that will come out in good fruit. 
As a blood-bought son, you seek to fulfill righteousness through Jesus. As a blood-bought son, you seek to be holy as God is holy. And as a blood-bought son, you do not to be af- need to be afraid that anything or anyone will take you away from the love of God. However, it is easy for Christians to lie to themselves. We still fight against the flesh, we still fight against the devil, and the devil is eager to exploit those things that, that might pull away the Christian from Christ. So Christians are warned again and again, you belong to Jesus. In Corinth, there are Christians that argue the soul is what matters, but the body not so much. Paul warns, God bought you with a price. In Romans, there may have been people out there who argued that we may sin all the more, that Christ's grace may abound. Paul says, you have died to sin in Christ. Now live to righteousness in his resurrection. Yet do we not still have the precious blood of Jesus, so that even as we do what we do not want to do, I imagine as you hear these words, you're thinking, I don't live up to this standard, I don't live up to this worthiness. But we have the precious blood of Jesus, so that even as we do what we do not want to do, we continue to approach God for the sake of the precious blood of Jesus. Your baptism is a promise that you can continually come to God and receive washing through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bought you so that nothing can separate you from His love. And that should be our encouragement as we go out into the world as well. Our transfer to the kingdom of the Son is is a promise that is characterized this way in Ephesians 2, verse 6. Speaking, he's just spoken of the salvation and redemption we have in Christ, and he follows that with that Christ raised us up, or God raised us up with Christ and seated us within the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In principle, we're already with Him. We are citizens of heaven, even as we still labor in the sinful flesh here on earth and are subject to the suffering of the flesh. But we know in this that we have an inheritance with Him, and that is what gives us boldness to continue to serve Christ in all things, especially as the world around us grows more and more negative toward Christianity By His strength and His promises, by His Spirit, we are able to continue to exercise all righteousness and confess the gospel in an increasingly wicked world. Christ is saving Lord. That truth is at the center of our faith. All things are yours in Christ Jesus. That is how we can know for certain that after we have suffered for a little while, we will also be exalted in Him. If we endure in Him, we will also reign with Him. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Let's sing in response from Psalm 148.